In early Denver, newspapers were the media. At the end of the day, newspapermen gathered to socialize, play some poker, shoot some pool. They organized their own private club, the Denver Press Club. They had a clubhouse built, which still stands today and still functions as a social club and event center and celebrates the rich history of Denver's news reporters and newsmakers, which now includes electronic journalists and the fields of public relations and advertising. The Denver Press Club is the oldest continually operating press club in the country and sponsors and hosts a variety of entertaining and informative programs and events. This edition of the Denver Press Club is sponsored by the Denver Press Club and the Colorado Chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. Jean Lar has the kind of resume and um, accolades that actually forced me to put on my reading glasses and, because my, and get a cheat sheet because uh, my recall is just not good enough to recount as many achievements. Um, Mr. Lar was the chief theater critic for The New Yorker from 1992 until 2012 when he left his weekly theater review duties to write even more profiles, essays, and books. Some of his profiles and their subjects include August Wilson, Arthur Miller, Tony Kushner, Sarah Rule, and, wait for it, actress Sharon Stone, which was intriguing to me. Um, he is a two-time winner of the George Jean Nathan Award for Dramatic Criticism, and he's the only theater critic to have won a Tony. He co-wrote Elaine Stritch at Liberty in 2002, I believe. Yeah. And he's the only, oh, as for the books, his works include Prick Up Your Ears, the biography of Joe Orton, Dame Edna Everidge and the Rise of Western Civilization, backstage with Barry Humphreys. And he wrote a book about a fellow named Bert Lahr, yeah, his dad. And that book was called Notes of a Cowardly Lion. His 2014 biography, Tennessee Williams' Mad Pilgrimage, of the Flesh won the National Book Critics Award for Biography. It also won the Sheridan Morley Prize for, for Theater Biography. And the American Academy of Arts Letters, this is a mouthful in itself, Harold, Harold D. Fischel Memorial Award was in recognition of the quality of prose style, which I think any of you, and I think all of you here because you're fans, can say a hearty here, here too. This is an amazing writer. Um, Mr. Lahr was born in Los Angeles, but raised in New York City, and now resides in London. Uh, he's in town to introduce lucky readers to his latest, Joyride, show people in their shows, but we also get to talk about a number of books, including Tennessee, the Tennessee Williams biography. Uh, I think people are here to hear you, first of all, so we're going to hear from Mr. Lahr for a while, and then I will step in with some questions, but I won't get in the way of your questions, so we have a pretty full afternoon uh, to chat with Mr. Lahr about his extraordinary journeys. He's a little bit of a show people himself, is what it comes down to. So, Mr. Lahr, what a pleasure. Thank you, Lisa. Well, when, uh, when you grow up in the household of a star, uh, certain privileges accrue. You, uh, you get to watch the Macy's Day Parade from <laughs> Ethel Merman's uh, house in Central Park West. You get to carry Buster Keaton's ukulele to the train station. and. Uh, your godfather is Eddie Foy Jr. of the Seven Little Foys, who, when his wife left him, nailed all her clothes to the floor. Uh, and so you, you grow up knowing uh, both uh, the golden world of celebrity and the great disparity between the public persona and the private one. And that, for me, has always been um, a major uh, fascination and confusion, I think. Uh, it's a, a way of something that, you know, one is always, everything you do is autobiographical. And I think, although I, as Lisa said, I wrote a biography of my father, I think one is always coming back to the issues of how you honor your talent and your life and how you can or don't get the, keep those things at some sort of... Um, Balance. Now, the reason I, today I did a TV show uh, prior to coming here, and they showed a picture of me as a six-year-old, a very preppy six-year-old in a, a, a Prince Charles check short pants and a double-breasted suit in front of my father's dressing room. I'm looking at my father, 
and he's looking at himself in the mirror. And that is more or less the, symbolically a sort of iconic picture, not without love, but to, it was very, my sister, who was two years younger than myself, loved my father dearly, but couldn't reach him. And the only way I could reach him, or even ever find out anything about him, was to write a biography, which I started when I was 21. It was published when I was 28. I'm glad to say it's still in print. But the, in, the, in the course of starting and in doing the, the, the book on my father, I encountered, uh, just, you know, he's 50 years a star and a beloved star with, thou, I mean, enough press and ink, honestly, to reach the ceiling here and maybe cover half this room. Just mounds of press. And what became really interesting to me, and this will perhaps sound simple-minded to you, is that I have, as every biographer knows, you have to go through all this. You have to read everything. And the thing that was really startling was, in all this press, there was nothing, or almost nothing, that actually approached who he was, that even attempted to analyze him, or, or even characterize the kind of madcap stuff that he did. Yes, there were reviews, but um, and a few people, a few critics, who had a sense of language to conjure what he was doing. But generally speaking, the, the conundrum was this. He was, he was famous, but he was, he was famous, but he was unseen. Mm -hmm. And and what I wanted to do, and in a sense, that very first endeavor, which was to write a book about him, has carried through my life, is I simply wanted to bear better witness to the theater, to him initially, but to the theater tradition to which he belonged, and to which I, by association, it was part of my uh, DNA because my mother was a Ziegfeld girl and uh, he was this genius comedian and um, I just wanted I, I wanted when I read the books on, on theater the thing that was astonishing to me as a, as a young man was that they 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 were so they didn't they didn't get the feel that I knew from being backstage they didn't give you a sense of what it meant to make a piece of work they, it didn't, they didn't give you a sense of the sort of, the, the, the anguish of it, or the, the, but what it was was mostly anecdotage without, anecdotage without ideas. Right. And so that there was this really juicy thing out there called theater and plays, and you, no discussion, no taking the, taking the work and linking it to the life not only of the person who's making it, but to, if, if, the, if the, uh, the, and my father was one example, if, if the, the, the person actually was resonated with the culture, if the culture took that person in, and, and part of what their, their time on earth was defined by was the, the joy or, or the, the pleasure that this particular performer gave, there was no attempt to interpret that. And so from the absolute beginning, now, mind you, I had been to Yale, and I had been to Oxford, and I had studied under a great critic called Christopher Ricks, who currently has the chair at Brandeis. So I, 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 I had a, a certain amount of sensibility, and I sort of, what I wanted to do was just, as I say, look closer at this thing. And the... New Yorker Profiles and The New Yorker uh, gave me a chance to fulfill uh, a kind of, uh, I don't want to call it a mission, but a sort of a approach that I had always had, but never had the resources to do. Now, 
just to say something about um, uh, uh, essentially a New Yorker profile is a mini biography. Mm, exactly. It's you're 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 uh, you're using the same skills, the same curiosity, the same uh, attempt to bring the the reader as close as you can possibly get to the feel, uh, to the texture of the person and the making of stuff, and how they do it. Now, of course. You know, I write about Joyride is uh, about playwrights and directors, and so uh, that you you can certainly follow a production through. In in a couple of cases, uh, the directors I've done that, but um, and it, 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 with with actors too, uh, you can watch them work uh, to a degree, but it's uh, you are trying always to not only get their, or try to get their, uh, something essential in their performing mechanism, uh, which I'll talk about in a minute. But you're also trying to extend that to the culture outside it in some way. <clears throat> so you're juggling uh, sort of a lot of uh, balls, balls in the air. Now, the thing about the New Yorker, which is, you know, when I was a kid, I, I had, a, I, I actually used to fantasize that I had a magic pen. And if I held it with two hands, the, the pen would write. And it would write perfect sentences and it would make sense. It was just great. And needless to say, as everyone <laughs> knows, that's not, you know, it's try again, fail again, fail better. Uh, but I did. And the thing, I sometimes wonder, because I, I say I'm still writing for the New Yorker, although I'm not reviewing, as you say, um, that it is almost like a magic pen uh, for the simple reason that everyone that you've ever read in the New Yorker, from the great, great biggies like John Updike to the lesser fish like myself, um, is edited and edited well by people who are devoted to and love improving the prose of the people that are already not bad writers. But what it did for me in particular was something extraordinary. You know, I, in the end, I've so far published, I guess, almost around a million words in the New Yorker. And it was a liberation for me to have an editor who, know, who, knew, my, who knew my moves and also knew uh, my... Uh, my vocabulary, and who sort of understood how I thought, so that when I when I wrote, I didn't have to worry about the the the, re, the real impediment to writing is fear, as it is to everything in life. And if you don't have, to, and if you know that there's somebody out there who can catch you if you take a wrong turn, uh, who can improve your structure, or tell you that really. What you just wrote was a little vulgar, and you might want to cut that. <laughs> you might you might want to cut that out. What it does is it completely frees you to fly, and so that the 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 time I, I sort of count my writing life from the New Yorker till now in the sense that I, I I was completely free, and I'd never had that experience. I was just free to trust my instincts and free to go. Now all these profiles that you. You read. Let's just take, for instance, the one that's out this week, the Julianne Moore piece. Um, that piece, everybody's happy with it. I'm happy with it. That piece was twice as long when I submitted it to the editor. I now don't even worry about the fact. I know that I, I, what I want to do is express myself and express who I think she is. And I know that if they, I know that the piece has got to be 8,000, and I won't dare look at the word count because I just want to do the piece as I feel it. And then I will send it over to my editor, it's called Deborah Treisman. She's in charge of the fiction as well as mm -hmm. some nonfiction things. And within 48 hours of sending in a 14,000 word piece, that piece will be back to me at 9,000 words. And it won't be rewritten, it'll be my stuff. Sometimes it'll be reorganized. Sometimes it'll just be, some stories will be taken away. Um, but the, the experience is uh, extraordinary because it's like 
taking a car apart, polishing all the little parts, and putting it back together again. Now, the thing is, everybody on The New Yorker gets this treatment. Not just me, everybody. So that in itself is interesting. In, the, in terms of doing the profiles, it's a sort of collaboration with the editors who always want the newest thing that happened yesterday. They like a profile reference. And your own taste, a sort of negotiation. But for me, uh, the, the, first, the first profile I ever wrote liberated the first volume of Tennessee Williams's authorized biography, which was held in Perda for, for about five years. And I wrote a, I didn't, I, I, I got, I, I went to work on that with the help of the biographer who was stalemated. And at the end of a three months research, I published my first profile. I'd never been asked to write profiles, but I, I wrote this one. And I, I, it was about the mismanagement of, of uh, Williams's estate by his so-called literary executor, a woman called Lady, Lady Maria St. Just. Neither a lady nor a saint nor just, as it happened. <laughs> as it turned uh, out. Uh, but, but, but what the effect of it was that the, I, I could have, had she lived, I could have put her in jail. I had her on extortion. Uh, I had, you know, any, the journalists in the room will know how thrilling this was. I had her on blackmail. I had her on attempted murder. I mean, I mean it was just an appall, you know, a never-ending tale of infamy. And the, the, in order to put a spin on it, the, the, the lawyers who had held up and so abused their power, and in a way, uh, get, let, the, let the book be published. And Lyle and I became friends. And he said, look, if anything would happen to me, would you take over? And that's in his, he died. And I, got, I, I had to do a different kind of book than he would have done. But that's how it happened. It happened from the first profile of The New Yorker. But then I had another string to my bow at The New Yorker. And I've done that subsequently. I've now written over 40. When I, the, the, the New Yorker profiles, as I say, are mini biographies. And they take about four months to write. Mm. Um, and they uh, are uh, deeply researched, not just uh, interviews with the subject, but all sorts of uh, 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 subsidiary interviews, witnesses, sometimes pro, sometimes against, but in, that give you a sort of much more vivid outline of the person, their problems, or whatever. Now, when I write to pitch these people, uh, on the one hand, it's extraordinary. Uh, it's like a magic carpet for me because you're coming with the New Yorker behind you. So that in itself is uh, people are interested in. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. On the other hand, uh, it, 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 it is a scrutiny that some people don't want. I, I, I asked Mel Brooks at the time of the producers. He'd already been profiled, but the producers, which sold 35,000 tickets in the first day, uh, it opened. Um, I asked him to do a profile. And he said he wrote. He actually called me. He said, "John, I love what you do. I just don't want you doing it to me." <laughs> That's high praise. <laughs> yeah, I guess. In but I, mean, I loved it because I, I, I understand what he means. Because when I when I when I write to the people that I'd like to do, I say two things. And the first thing I say is there's no tabloid intention in all this. And the second thing I say is that if you, it is not worth doing unless you uh, are willing to sort of really collaborate. Mm -hmm. And by collaborate, I mean the New Yorker requires that you see the subject in at least three different places and in three different times. And I always ask for at least four or five people that the subject would like me to talk to. Now, I'll talk to many more, but uh, I at least see the people that they want. Now, this, so that, this, is, the, this, is, where the, this is the biographical exercise. It's, it's, uh, the reporters in the room will understand what this is. This is just getting your story. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, you know, you just, you're just reporting it. But what people who read these pieces don't realize is that you cannot, if you're doing a profile of Al Pacino, which I, I did uh, a, a couple of um, 
uh, uh, profiles ago. Um, nobody is going to talk to you at all about Al Pacino unless Al Pacino says it's okay to talk. Not going to happen. So what? One of the things that happens in it doesn't always happen right away, but it happens in the course of usually the first after the first interview. You you build a relationship with your subject, and you can't. They've agreed to talk to you, but the, the agreement is predicated on the fact that they know that there's going to be a certain amount of psychological scrutiny, mm -hmm. and they know they've been told that if they it's rather like good tailoring that the, the more sittings, the better the fit. That's a nice way you know, of putting it. You know, that's the way it works. So if, if you want, uh, now you mentioned, you mentioned Sharon Stone. Uh, that's the only profile I will never print, I'll never reproduce. <laughs> uh, because she didn't deserve a profile, mm. and uh, she didn't uh, play. She wanted the New Yorker. Uh, she wanted, she wanted the, the brand. She actually the... <laughs> went in to Tina Brown. Tina forced me to do it. And I never, I never, I, I, that, this was a deal breaker almost of doing profiles. And so, because, and then Sharon um, proceeded to walk out of a photo shoot with Richard Avedon. And I thought the profile was going south. So I called Tina and I said, okay, what's, what, what should I do? She said, bring her in. I brought her in and she, said, she went in and tried to convince Tina to, this is the New Yorker, to put her on the cover of the New Yorker. <laughs> and so as a consequence, Tina came to Fantastic. Hater. And every time I'd submit my copy, and I was trying to be fair, Tina would pencil out my lines and she'd put a more pejorative adjective in. in and, I, <laughs> and, I, yeah, yeah, and I said, Tina, I, I can't, I, you know, this can't be, we can't do it, we can't work if we do it. But that apart, the, the, it's, a, it's a collaboration. And it's a, it's a, it's a hard-won collaboration. And it's, it's only won by the feeling on the part, which has got to be genuine, on the part of the, your subject, that there is genuine care for what they do. I'm not into, I mean, one of the problems in the nature of, and why I think these profiles serve a purpose, is that the theatricals in the culture are not really discussed. Their, their lifestyles mm. are, their sexual lives are, but the general atmosphere of the media has increasingly, even more so with the blogosphere, become laughably uh, shallow. And what my interest is in, in doing, especially, I mean, with the playwrights, in, in Joyride, is to, we usually see plays in the context of no context. We need better audiences. We need people to know more about the theater and to be interested in. The more information, the closer I can get to these people and show them and show their process or show something about them. I mean, for instance, here, the first piece is on Arthur Miller, whose centennial is coming up. Well, I went with Arthur Miller to the, the woods behind his first house in Connecticut, where, having never built anything in his life, he built a cabin, and he, he had decided that when the cabin was finished, he would go in there and write the play that he was working on. And he tells me that uh, his only lines that he had in his mind he kept repeating these lines in his mind, who's there, I came back, which are the first lines of Willie Lohman. Uh, and he, the day he finished the cabin, he sat down and in eight hours wrote the first act mm -hmm. of Death of a Salesman with his tools still on the floor. Now to me, that makes my hair stand on end. And exactly. I think it makes understanding death of a salesman 10 times more interesting. And that's the goal of all these things. August Wilson, who I think in my, system, my sort of value system is probably after Miller and Williams, the, the greatest and 
actually, although he's heralded, not anywhere near heralded enough for his achievement, uh, which is uh, astounding uh, endeavor. I wrote a profile of August and went to Pittsburgh with August, you know, was able to walk the streets with him and the drug dealers he hung out with, meet his sister, tell a whole story of his incredible story of this guy's life who walked out of high school at the age of 15 because his teachers didn't believe he had written the paper that he'd written. He never went back to school. He, went, he educated himself in the library and to, he, he tells me at one point that he, he's only, he never read any of the playwrights. He said it took him so long to get his poetic voice that he didn't want to be influenced by any right. of the playwrights. And as a consequence, at the time that I interviewed him, he'd only seen 12 plays other than his own. Amazing. Anyway, all, the, the point is the, 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 uh, the, the New Yorker allowed, allows you, as no other magazine does now, that first of all, Generally speaking, there's no coverage of the theater in most of the magazines. Uh, we know, uh, as you're experiencing here in Denver even, that the theater, even though you have a really solid theater and theaters up and down here on I-99, there's no discussion of the theater. They, you know, that they, there's no discussion of, the, of what was or, and what is. There's not enough. So that the theatrical and theatrical culture becomes more distant uh, in the minds of the populace, which is the whole point of my little uh, endeavor, is to keep the theatricals in the minds and in the culture, and, and to keep not their sensational lifestyles in mind, but what they're working for, what they're doing. I mean, in the, in the current profile of Julianne Moore, for instance, we all know that she's an affecting actress, but what I was interested to discover and what it's about is how she actually lives and protects her imagination from mm -hmm. the incursions of ordinary life how she and also how a lot of the a lot of the accurate the, the, there's a sort of her performances are very succinct and penetrating and one of the things that is that comes out of the kind of scrutiny I'm talking about is that she actually has a visual imagination as well as an emotional imagination. So part of the impact of her performance has nothing at all to do with what she's feeling, but what she knows the camera and the mm. language of the camera is showing. So where the camera is in relation to her in, in, in what actually modifies and influences her performance. Fascinating. And explain. No, that is really fascinating. I'm just going to jump in for a moment because I sort of I'm getting like sort of a snowball of themes that I think are really Go, interesting. Absolutely. And but one of the things that in going from Miller to Wilson and then talking about Julianne Moore is that and and what you what you do and what you achieve in profiles is I think this sort of sense of connecting us to artists and art in a way that the, you know, for lack of a better word, sort of celebrity culture, it has sort of separated them from. I mean, and so there's this sense of like, when you were talking about Julianne Moore and what she's able to do in her imagination, so these are the things that are Julianne Moore-ish, so to speak, and then you mentioned that she has this visual imagination that allows her to understand the camera. That is one of the, like, real, I mean, one of the extraordinary things about film versus theater to some degree, or in juxtaposition to theater, is that sense of the cam what the camera brings to that relationship on screen. And so I think in But most actors like don't that, necessarily operate out of that. No, no. And in fact, guess, guess which actors I've learned that from as a film theater critic at the Post for a while. The Peter, people I've learned from are like Frank Langella, who is in who does amazing work on screen and also in the theater. And so there's this sort of sense of learning how they are able to understand, I think, Helen Mirren. I mean, there's a list of people who are really quite gifted to some degree, I think, at an understanding and trusting the camera. So basically, I'm just making a point that what's interesting, and I think the arguments that your pieces make so eloquently, is the argument of 
an artist, a person, and the art, and how we don't really want to separate them. We don't want to have like a celebrity culture. We don't have. We don't want to have profiles that don't engage what the art is. In oh, some I know, degree. but the difficulty is that the public is, you know, is fed this pablum, you know, and right. generally, and they don't get it. And and what? Well, I just wanted to say that, which I didn't, was that my yes, view. My view is that both plays and players are metaphors, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they're there to be interpreted. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the thing about performers, especially comic performers, I think, but of course other pe- people like Pacino or Brando, uh, uh, the clowns, they they are sort of the people. Who, they are sort of the unelected legislators of our the time. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about Donald Trump. The culture will forget him in a minute, yeah. but they'll carry the memory of the artists with them. They, the, these artists have a way of defining our time on earth. And so I'm interested in, in, in uh, interpreting their, for lack of a better word, po- the poetic aspects of right. them. And, and making the, that felt in the culture insofar as one can in a, in a, in a written, in written form. You know, if you, if you appreciate an interview where you think, my God, this is, I never heard this before, or this is very, that's novel. Mm-hmm. Usually that's because the interviewer has called that person out. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, I, I never liked, although I am, put myself in the Julianne Moore piece, I like to extract myself. I'm not interested in watching myself go by here. But, but I'm very interested in the fact that if I can get when I do a profile, I've read everything that the person has said it publicly. I, if they've written a book, I've read the book, usually. So I know every person, like Janet Malcolm says, I disagree with Janet Malcolm. She says that mm-hmm. no matter who, the, who it is, the person is going to tell you the story about themselves that they want to tell you. I disagree with that. I think that if, depending on the interviewer, the person calling them out, depending on the questions, you can trap... I don't mean uh, you can catch things that or, or call things out of people that they don't even know. Um, I was having a terrible time connecting to Roseanne mm-hmm. initially. And Roseanne is probably the, the, the most repeat, uh, reprinted of my profiles. Uh, and she, Roseanne is surprised, considering how aggressive she is in her humor, She's almost, um, she, you can really feel she was abused almost by the, the affectlessness of her in life. Mm-hmm. It's very, not unlike, my, not unlike my father, mm-hmm. who was dynamic on stage and terrible. It's very confusing to me. It still is, I suppose, that he was dynamic and playful on stage. And he would come off the stage and he'd hit the wings and he would deflate like a tire. Just a completely other person. I mean, sensationally morose. Um, and... I mentioned I had a, having written the biography of my father, I formed a theory about comedy and revenge, mm-hmm. and, and great comics being uh, great, great comedy coming out of revenge as expressed in phallic fun, putting it to the audience, you know, really essential, you know, really taking them on, taking them for a tumble, you know. And the minute I mentioned to Roseanne, I remember she was in a, she was having her hair done uh, before going on the set, and I said something about phallic fun. She just about jumped out of the chair and said, "You know, oh, men stole. You know, I, I have a much bigger penis than a, than a man. You know, I, I have a vagina. Men stole." And then she got up and she started the, the birth positions or something. And she and she understood what I was talking about. Right. And. Uh, then we were away, you know, then, then I'd broken into something that she never talked about that was actually essential to the, her, her comic nature. I got it uh, because I intuited the, the, the thing. When I, when I did the, the other profile, which is, in, which is in Joyride, was in Mike Nichols, who <laughs> I became a friend of mine after the profile. Uh, Nichols wanted me to do the profile. He waited a year until I could do the profile. 
when I did the profile, he made sure that I got whatever I needed, right? And I remember on the last day of the profile, uh, we were in his bedroom, and he, we were sitting on a sort of chaise longue in his bedroom, and he declared himself really happy with the conversation, which had been about 10 hours of conversation. And he, is, he was, certainly, uh, a kind of sublime conversationalist. I mean, there's nobody I know I've ever met who was more, um, uh, had more, it was a sort of purveyor of aplomb. You know, he was just, mm -hmm. he, and brilliant insights. So he said he was really happy with what happened. And, and I said, yeah, I do well with the inconsolable. And I just felt comfortable with it. It just came out. And it was like I saw, it was like I threw Tommy Cooper throwing a lucky punch that knocked Muhammad Ali down. Mm -hmm. I, I, I saw him hear the words and his eyes shut. And he sort of sat back, <coughs> he sort of pushed himself back in the chair. And then he said, we get a lot done. <laughs> and that took, that meant a lot to me because that, he didn't duck it, he mm -hmm. accepted it. But it, it was the end, that's the last line of the profile. But that sort of made us friends because we'd gone to some place that he'd let me see something that his whole life was dedicated to not showing. Right. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do yeah. know what you mean, I think. And I'm, and I'm curious when you, I somehow imagine that in order to have these authentic interactions with people, you can't kind of go in wanting to manipulate that. So do you have a sense of what you, how to approach people? Do you approach them differently? Do you... it's, it's quite intuitive. And it's quite, um, I, I have a sense of the person. And I don't make it happen. But I, 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 wait, I, I wait till they're finished telling me their official story. And what I'm listening for is the part of, in them that seeks expression, what they want to express, get out of themselves. Right. And I'm listening, I'm listening sort of for that. And, or, or trying to see, uh, I don't even know, it's a, it's, I hate to use the word, it's, it's like what therapists do, but it's not therapy or anything like that. But right. you're, you're sort of hovering and listening and trying to sort of hear where the vulnerability is, mm -hmm. where they are, and where they are, why they need to get on stage and show off, or why they, why they need to direct. I mean, it's fascinating. Nichols says that he, what he loved about directing was he, he had a family, and he was the father. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so you, you, in the Julianne Moore thing, um, I, the thing that gave me the clue to Julianne Moore wasn't her movies, because I've mm -hmm. seen those, but her children's books. Because mm -hmm. she wrote a children's book called Freckle-Faced Strawberry. That's her. <laughs> And Freckleface Straw, Strawberry, and the and the, I think the and the monster, but the monster is her imagination, and the and the monster she consults the monster when she's being bullied, and the monster helps her out. He he takes uh, you know, he 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 gives her strategies, and he uh, banishes gravity and helps you know, and so she. And when I, when I, the first, the very first question I asked her was not about her L'Oreal contract mm -hmm. or her Academy Award, but to talk to me about the monster. And the monster was her imagination. And, the, and her protecting of her imagination is the, actually the linchpin of how she lives her life and protects it from uh, being sucked up by all the publicity that she has to do, right. she doesn't get. She doesn't give it away. Mm -hmm. She protects it anyway, and that became a, a way in. Right. And with Pacino, a completely other, other thing. I, I actually reviewed Pacino's first ever major performance, which was Indian Wants the Bronx, and he even <laughs> I had to point out to him. Toby Award yeah. had my signature on the bottle. There you go. There you go. Anyway, Pacino is fascinating because he's, we all know he's one of the great 
actors of our time, but he's also, like my father, a man who was never educated. Mm -hmm. So I immediately understood that all these great people who have risen have in instinctively achieved something that almost no one can, but at the same time, there is that sense of lack and shame that comes with not knowing. My father once called me up. My father hated paying for my, hated paying all this money for me to get educated. He never put any pressure on me whatsoever to do anything. He never passed a thing in his life, didn't care what kind of grades I got, didn't, didn't care where I went to school. He would come back from the store club and said, I met Father Hesbro. He says you can go to Notre Dame. My mother would be outraged and say things like, John's not going to Notre Dame. He's going to where Foxy Sondheim's son goes. You know what I mean? It was all, <laughs> it was all, it was all that kind of competitive thing. It was silly. Anyway, he shelled out money for my very good education. And, and I remember I was working on the biography, and I was out in the West Coast, and he was fishing with his mates up in Canada. And he called me up. He had a bet on. And he said, John, did Chaucer write Beowulf? <laughs> Hilarious to me. Anyway, the, 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 uh, great, great. But anyway, Pacino, when he talked, he circles the airport, hmm. never comes down. Mm -hmm. So you could be there for three hours, and he's, it's like he acts. He, he, he wants to do 30 takes, you know, he just goes, so, so I was, You'll know, you'll understand what this is like. The, the tape recorder is running. I need a story. Oh, yeah. We've got to, and he, he's, <laughs> he's still there in Boston when he's 22. I can't get him removed. So what, what happened, what was a good fortune was that what people don't, you know, all these famous people actually are not seen. And they, they, they care about their work. They want to be seen but they want to be intelligently seen. And if they feel that you are actually seriously interested in what they do, and that you're not there to put it, you know, out there in some sort of, un, uh, you know, in some sort of uh, capricious way, they, they, will, they will unburden themselves to a degree. With Pacino, it was hilarious because I, I wanted him to say more, but there was just no time because he was talking. So we started to email. And Pacino is, the, the actual strictures of the email, he has a lot of time on his hands. And he's under celebrity arrest. I mean, you know, he can't, he can't go out very much because everybody's got a cell phone. And every, I mean, I was waiting outside his house to go in. I was too early. And the those celebrity buses in Hollywood that go around, open-topped. I'm waiting in the car, and a celebrity bus pulls up, and I hear the guy saying, this is Al Pacino. And the guy looks down at me, and he said, you were here yesterday. And, and I said, yeah. He said, you a friend of Al's? I said, yeah. And all the people on the bus took my picture. <laughs> I mean, it's insane. And, and, he, and he, can't, he can't go out. And so he would email me, and you know he's late at night. You know, you know, I don't need a f the psychiatrist you're asking me these questions, and then he would talk. Uh -huh. And so I have 40 emails from Al Pacino, wow. and out of those 40 emails, a man emerged, a wonderful man actually. I, I'd like to I'm, I consider myself a friend of his, but I mean impossible. Owls, very sort of feral, you know, and moving around. Uh, but he swears he's coming to dinner in, in London, which I hope he will. Uh, but it was very moving to me because I felt, you know, having lived with someone like my father who had that, who lived that same kind of curious, you know, the wonderful talent and this uh, fearfulness, you know, the, the way that plays out in a person, it's just fascinating. And I love, I love seeing that. And I, you know, I think I, you, the word love is such a bad word, but I think that people, I care about the people that I write about. I don't write about, that's why my Sharon Stone profile sucks, as far as I'm concerned, because I didn't care about her. Right. I didn't care about her from the get-go. But I care about all the other people I do. 
Might you have cared about her had she not been such a... No. Okay. <laughs> just checking. Just want to no, make no, sure one movie, one movie, what one movie she had, she, you know, you know, it's like how uh, Oscar Levant used to say, used to say, I like to play a medley of my hit. <laughs> that is so wrong. That's so funny too. You know, I said that um, I would open it up for questions, and I think we're going to run out of time. So uh, I'll take maybe two or three. Um, anybody? Yes. Yeah. I'm wondering what the connection um, is might be between your um, interviewing uh, people that you care about, lots of them. Um, Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's not approach to my father. I'm, I'm, there are, what I am interested in is how the ordinary person becomes the extraordinary person. Uh, I, I love, I wrote a whole, the whole book about Barry Humphreys is, I wrote it backstage. I don't believe there's any book that's ever been written about a comedian from backstage. I think that's the only one. But that change, that, that sort of mutation fascinates me. And I'm also, one of the things that really interests me is, it's in, not only for my life, but certainly for my father's life. My parents never got, my father never got the balance right. He obsessed entirely about his work, he hardly knew us, uh, loved us in his own mad way, but didn't. And I'm really interested to see how the people with this enormous gift mediate between their imaginary life and their real life, their self and the community. In the case of August Wilson, his daughter didn't even know he lived at the house anymore. He was away so long. You know, that's a sort of awesome. You know, and, but Julianne Moore, uh, amazing how well she does that, and she's able to both do her work as a as a, as, a, as an artist and do her work as a parent and works very as hard uh, at both. And is able to sort of keep, the, keep the, the work away from the life of the family. Fascinating to me, uh, because it, it takes a certain kind of rigor and intelligence that isn't always on offer you know, in, that, in that world. I wonder if you've ever considered doing an in-depth making of uh, a production such as Barry Was a Lady, Way of exploring your father's work. Well, you know, I can't now because all the players are dead. Uh, but I have uh, in uh, in in this book, in Joyride, for instance, I do uh, uh, I did a uh, did a followed a show, uh, Bullets Over Broadway, which was a much better show than actually it was reviewed in the Times, and, and Susan Stroman. And I followed Susan from the day of the first rehearsal to the, the end of the first preview, which was like a rock concert. It's interesting because, because of the privilege of The New Yorker, and do, have I done Woody Allen? I have done Woody Allen. And I, so I know Woody. Uh, Stroman I didn't know at first. But when they were going through the process of bringing the show together, I was probably three feet from them, listening to the conversations, recording it, writing it down. So that if you want to know how a musical gets made, unfortunately it wasn't DuBarry was laid out. I wish it was my father and Ethel Merman arguing. Although my sister had my sister has all the good family photographs, you know. But my sister has a picture of dad dressed as Louis the Fourteenth, with Ethel Merman flipping him off. <laughs> uh, and in our house, in our, in our, um, over our dining room, for the entire of my teenage life, there was a painted portrait of my father as Louis the Fourteenth. So you got the picture of our house, right? The royal, <laughs> the royal thing. Fantastic. Anyone else? There's a. Oh, so good. I've always been curious in the minds of critics when you're writing. That's a great question. What's in your mind? Uh... That, that's a really good question. And this, this, brings, this, uh, this is a distinction between, I make a distinction between reviewing and criticism. And I think it's an it's a, it's a, important difference. And I'm not in any way 
trying to minimize the importance of reviewing, but I think it's a different animal. If you ask a reviewer who he's writing for, he's writing for his, his readers, his audience. Now, as a critic, of course, criticism is a performance and you always have to write to entertain, but I'm, when I write, I'm writing for the people who made the, the, the show. Uh, because it's my experience that actually, they don't always know what they've made. Like when you write a book, you think you've said what you, you, you have it, but you sort of like, in a sense, like a parent with a child, the child looks at the parent to get an agreement about behavior or about who they are. To a certain extent, that's the function of criticism, which is to reflect back to the makers what they've made and to try to take it forward. I mean, I've sat with Harold Pinter and said, now, you know, what about this and this thematic thing? And he says, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, that's for you to tell me. I have no idea. So the, 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 the playwrights are making a metaphor, making something that's open-ended. And then it's for us. I mean, I mean, to a certain extent, theater is a game of show and tell, or a hide and seek, maybe. And the fun of it, the glory of it, is, is to sort of, for us to find out. They've placed all the, they know sort of what they think. Where, and one of the problems I have uh, with reviewing as it's practiced more or less in New, in New York anyway, is that once the, the critic is about interpretation, the reviewer is about opinion. The, the review is a market function. They, whether, this is what happened, this is when it happened, and this is whether you should spend your money to go and see it. I, I, that's not what I think uh, I want uh, that's not the kind of criticism I envisioned. And I'd like to think that while I was on The New Yorker, I did as much as I could to sort of move away from that. I had to have an opinion, but I wanted the reader to know not just what happened in the moment on the stage, but also to give them a little more information about the history of the play or have an observation about the musical. And for me, that was expressive because somehow in talking about all these things, I could also not only talk about other ideas, but I could find myself, more of myself, through analyzing the plays. So it was a, it was a, a, a journey of discovery for me as well as a sort of for the reader in a way, you know? So good question, thanks. I'm afraid that <laughs> I'm annoyed, actually, that this is the end of our time with John Lauer because it's so, it's fantastic, really. Yes, a lot of fun. And, uh, and I have a long list. I have a feeling that they have a long list of questions yet to be answered. Um, and uh, I want to thank the Denver Press Club for having us and the Colorado Chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists for having us as well. Thank you so much. And thank you, John, so well, much for the beautiful work and you. for your lovely thank time. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.